Hey, it's Mike McEntee. Remember the old Charlie Brown cartoons? You know, Charlie Brown, Lucy would get the football, and Lucy would line up the football, and Charlie Brown said, you're not going to do this to me again. He said, no, you'll be able to kick it, Charlie Brown. You'll be able to kick it. And so he says, okay, I'm going to kick it. And he comes running down, and he swings at the football and goes flying on his back, and then Lucy taunts him. Well, just like Lucy did to Charlie Brown, North Korea has suddenly pulled back the football just as Donald Trump was about to kick it. Suddenly, the off-again, on-again relationship between the U.S. and North Korea is off again. Is that unexpected? We're going to speak to a former Obama administration State Department official who has some insight into that situation. And also, we'll be talking about the Poor People's Campaign. You're going to hear about it a lot over the next month or so. We're going to find out why this campaign originally started by the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., is having a resurgence 50 years later and what's happening with it in Minnesota. But first, it's time to get out your scorecards here at the uh, at the uh, in Congress and at the Minnesota legislature. We had a bunch of important votes to get today, so let's roll through them as quickly as we can. Uh, the big one here, the U.S. Senate voted to block the FCC's repeal of net neutrality. This is in response to, I believe, massive protests online that have led to millions of emails and calls to lawmakers. This measure passed 52 to 47, and we had Republicans Susan Collins of Maine and John Kennedy of Louisiana and Lisa Murkowski of Alaska voting yes with the Democrats. Uh, the last-minute Republican support for the measure uh, bodes well for its chances in the House, where net neutrality supporters plan to wage a fierce battle to force a vote. Now, Kennedy from Louisiana was a vote closely watched as one of the few Republicans siding with Democrats on the issue. He was said he was ultimately persuaded to vote yes because more than one in five Louisianans lack a choice in their broadband provider. Quote, it was fairly close, but I'll tell you what it comes down to, the extent to which you trust your cable company. This is an interview with the Washington Post. He says, if you trust your cable company, you're not going to like my vote today. If you don't trust your cable company, you will. Well, that's one way of putting it. I, you know, when you start talking about cable companies, Comcast being one of them, they don't usually come up in the top 10 things of, you know, people that you like to deal with and you, you love the customer service. Uh, they're trying to change that, but that is not helping things. So this all comes with one month before the rules are officially expected to expire on June 11th. So it's not done yet. Lots more to happen, but a very important vote today in the U.S. Senate on that. Governor Mark Dayton, uh, he got a bill requiring physicians to invite patients to view an ultrasound image prior to an abortion. Well, he vetoed that. It's not going to become law. Uh, it was kind of expected. His veto message says the bill interferes with doctor-patient relationship, legislating the private conversations that occur about a legal medical procedure. In his veto message, Dayton also said, in addition, providers are already fulfilling their legal, ethical, and professional duties to fully inform their patients of benefits, risks, and alternatives of any medical procedure. So bye-bye to that bill. It was pretty much expected. Now, uh, the big kerfuffle, and it's more than a kerfuffle, this is 800-some million dollars uh, in the Senate, was that the Senate failed to pass a bonding bill today. It needed a supermajority, fell many votes short of that, even though it got a majority of the votes. Democrats voted against the bill, wanting more money for construction projects across the state. The Republicans are already turning, had ready, right after the vote, uh, graphics to take down to their press conference saying this is what the Democrats have voted against. They're bad, 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 bad. Expect this to be a campaign issue, but the Republicans are saying they're still trying to work something out. Governor Mark Dayton would like to see a much bigger bonding bill, as would most of the Democrats. And again, this is money that can be borrowed at pretty much historically low rates to do a lot of the stuff that Republicans would like to do, but you know, it's uh, that would that that's bigger government. That's bigger government. Now, the Senate did pass. And this is disappointing to a lot of folks. They did pass the Enbridge pipeline bill that allows Enbridge to build their pipeline without Public Utilities Commission approval. It passed 35 to 32. 
And this is a bill that Enbridge did not ask for. The Public Utilities Commission is moving along. But again, this is about the 2018 election. This is about Republicans being able to say, hey, we're 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 looking out for the energy interest and jobs, jobs, jobs in Minnesota. Now, the pipeline is not going may create some jobs while they build it. But as we've talked on this program many times before, the pipeline doesn't really even bring stuff into Minnesota. It brings it in, but it takes it out. We're pretty much a pass through. We don't really benefit by this pipeline. The only thing that it possibly might do, other than provide some short-term jobs for construction, is provide more problems if indeed the stuff leaks. Now, it, a lot of stuff has to happen yet. Um, this is a very complicated matter. But again, today's vote was about politics, as many of the votes are going to be here in the remaining Five and a half. Is that what we are down to? I think we have to be done by the 21st of May. So we're uh, next Monday is adjournment day. Things are moving. Things have to happen. A lot of stuff has to happen. But uh, Governor Dayton and the uh, and the, the Republicans are still deadlocked over uh, Governor Dayton would like his emergency school aid to go through. The Republicans have finalized and are have passed their um their tax bill, which Governor Dayton doesn't like. And he says, sure as heck, not even going to look at it, or he's going to veto it, he says, if they don't give his emergency aid to schools a chance. Now, uh, nationally here, if you've been following this, I'm sure you have been, uh, the whole Donald Trump payment scandal that's been going on. First, if you remember, Donald Trump denied involvement with making... uh, Mike, uh, any involvement in the Michael Cohen payment to Stormy Daniels. Then uh, his lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, admits that Trump reimbursed Cohen. Then Trump says, Giuliani just started. He doesn't know what he's talking about. He will get his facts straight. And then today, Trump files an official form acknowledging he reimbursed Cohen. Ta-da! In the new financial disclosure documents, President Trump reported reimbursing his personal attorney, Michael Cohen, for an expenditure over $100,000 last year. Now, it doesn't say what it is, but it's an apparent reference to the 130k that Cohen paid to ensure the silence of Stormy Daniels, who claimed she had an affair with Donald Trump. Um, this is a footnote. <laughs> it's a footnote in what? The 45th page of a 92-page disclosure. So somebody had to go through this with a fine comb to find this. It says, in 2016, expenses were incurred by one of Donald J. Trump's attorneys, Michael Cohen. Mr. Cohen sought reimbursement of those expenses, and Mr. Trump fully reimbursed Mr. Cohen in 2017. The category value would be $100,001 to $250,000, and the interest rate would have been zero. Uh, Remember, Earlier this year, Trump told reporters in Air Force One he had not known about Cohen's payment to Daniels. And Trump today was speaking about obstruction of justice. Yes, obstruction of justice. And you're all going, oh, great, he's finally going to talk about this. And no, it wasn't about anybody in the White House, but officials in California. He suggested the mayor of Oakland be charged or pursued by the Justice Department, I guess to be more correct, with obstruction of justice because she tipped off immigrants that ICE was planning a raid. Oh, and, and he, this was a whole meeting about immigration, about, uh, you know, what are we going to do about sanctuary cities? And I, I'm doing that in air quotes because sanctuary cities is a term that Republicans use to denigrate laws that are passed in cities to really ensure the safety of immigrants as well as the general population. But anyway, about immigrants... He says that uh, some of the immigrants coming into this country really aren't people. Yeah. We have people coming into the country or trying to come in. We're stopping a lot of them. But we're taking people out of the country. You wouldn't believe how bad these people are. These aren't people. These are animals. And we're taking them out of the country at a level and at a rate that's never happened before. And because of the weak laws, they come in fast. We get them, we release them, we get them again, we bring them out. It's crazy. The dumbest laws, as I said before, the dumbest laws on immigration in the world. So we're going to take care of it, Mark. Yeah, he said that in a room full of people, 
and no one spoke up to disagree. Of course, this is one of those meetings where everybody spends their time nodding their head. Yes, we love you, Donald Trump. We love you. Yes, everything you say is correct. And yes, 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 absolutely. We need to we need to do all that stuff. Trump during this meeting also claimed that border crossings were down 40 percent. Although the most recent statistics are going to suggest otherwise, according to the U.S. Customs and Border Protection, apprehensions at the southwest border were up in March and April 2018 over the same months in 2017. But you wouldn't expect anything different from the president. We are going to take a break here. And when we get back, we're going to talk about Donald Trump's next big challenge or the big challenge that maybe it's not the next one, but it's one of the challenges he's facing, which is, of course, North Korea, the uh, kicking the the Lucy taking the football away is Charlie Brown's trying to kick it, the routine I was talking about just earlier. We'll do that next year on the Mike McEntee Show. You're listening to AM 950. This is Pat with PJW Automotive. How do you choose an automotive repair shop? I bet you look for quality and dependability. You want someone you can trust to do the job right the first time. It saves you money and hassle because you're not coming back over and over again. My team of top-notch automotive specialists knows vehicles inside and out, and I guarantee it's worth the drive to PJW Automotive. One exit north of 694 on 35W and online at pjwauto.com. Hi, I'm Damian Strange, Executive Director of Northeast Minneapolis Arts Association, NEMA. And I'm personally inviting you to Arter World, May 18th through the 20th. View artwork of over 650 artists in every medium at more than 50 locations throughout Northeast Minneapolis, including studio buildings, art galleries, homes, storefronts, and local businesses. The Artist Open Studio Tour may include demonstrations, mini workshops, installations, and special exhibitions. Studio tours offer a great opportunity to ask questions, discuss techniques, experience art firsthand, and purchase unique artwork directly from artists. Arter World gives you a unique opportunity to meet the artists who make our community so vibrant and invest in our art community by purchasing artwork that you connect with. For more information, go to nema.org. That's nema.org. Looking forward to seeing you at Arter World. Jeff Warner here inviting you to Grill Expo this weekend at Warner Stellion Stores. We're firing up America's best-selling gas, charcoal, and pellet grills so you can watch them in action, enjoy some mouth-watering samples, and choose the grill that's perfect for you. Warner Stellion has the lowest prices of the year, plus free assembly, free delivery, free recycling, 18-month zero-interest financing, and three free products from no-name butcher-quality meats and seafood. It's Grill Expo this Saturday and Sunday at all nine Warner Stellion Stores. Welcome back to the Mike McEntee Show. Donald Trump may or may not have a meeting with North Korean President Kim Jong-un next month in Singapore. North Korea says it's reconsidering the summit. But if the two do meet, or even if they don't, there's a lot at stake here. Joining me to talk about it is Michael Fuchs, who served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for East Asian and Pacific Affairs during the Obama administration. He's now a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress. Michael, welcome to the program. Great to be here. Hey, let's start off with today's developments. North Korea is criticizing comments from Trump's new national security advisor, John Bolton, calling them reckless. Bolton raised the specter of doing to North Korea what the U.S. did to Libya, which led to their Muammar Gaddafi being deposed and killed. That's something, of course, that Kim Jong-un lives in fear of. Uh, North Korea considered it was reconsidering this meeting even before Bolton made his comments. Uh, what What's all going on here? Well, look, I, all I can say is let the games begin. <laughs> I mean, this is uh, negotiating. Um, this is how it works um, with most countries, um, but particularly with North Korea. Um, you know, the events of the last few weeks and months, actually, that have seemed like a uh, sort of nonstop, uh, full speed ahead move towards high level diplomacy um, uh, have really been very uh, abnormal. Um, based on the history of, of interactions and diplomacy with North Korea. Um, I think that what we see here is possibly returning to the norm, um, which is that North Korea is a very difficult uh, and stubborn negotiating uh, opponent. Um, and I think that what they're showing here is that they don't want this meeting 
uh, and this process uh, at all costs, right? Um, that they are doing this to secure what they believe are their interests, um, and they're not going to stop making clear uh, what their positions are and what their concerns are. Um, and so I think that we're seeing really the beginning of the real negotiating, perhaps starting now. How much of what John Bolton said here really figures into the equation? Because he's been a hardliner. Uh, he's, you know, he was involved in those uh, nuclear deals before. How much of that really figures into the the, the calculus here, or is that just kind of a, a sideshow? Well, look, I think that without a doubt, one of the main problems that the Trump administration has in preparing for this summit and this diplomacy is the lack of a coordinated and unified public message, um, which is part of, I think, the problem with what John Bolton said about using the Libya model. He was on the same day as Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, who was sending slightly different messages. Um, And again, that may very well reflect the lack of a coordinated strategy that this administration has uh, with North Korea. Um, But I think that North Korea's response to it um, is really more using this as an excuse, again, to try to be a tough uh, negotiator with the United States. Um, They've also, in the last 24 hours, uh, noted the uh, latest U.S.-South Korea military exercises um, as a potential problem here for the summit and provocation, Uh, even though they let the military exercises that the United States and South Korea did uh, just a month ago uh, go ahead without any problem. So again, I think that what we're seeing here, again, is North Korea using these as excuses to uh, um, really play a tough hand in the negotiating uh, with the United States. But the one thing I think that is important to note here is that the very long and detailed statement that North Korea put out uh, um, just uh, overnight about this very clearly is trying to go after John Bolton. It's curious to see whether or not North Korea is actually trying to drive some sort of a public wedge between John Bolton and uh, President Trump here. Well, let's talk about how did we get here a little bit. Uh, Why is Kim Jong-un, why did he suddenly decide that diplomacy was better than trading insults with Donald Trump? Yeah, I mean, this is the $64,000 question, right? I don't think we are going to know for certain what is driving Kim Jong-un until we get much further along in this process, and we see what, if anything, it really will uh, yield. Um, But I think that there are a number of different possible reasons why Kim Jong-un is uh, coming to the negotiating table finally. Uh, First, I think um, it is possible that the pressure from the United States and the international community, not just during the Trump administration, but frankly going back a handful of years, uh, is really taking a toll. Um, The economic sanctions are now uh, more uh, damaging to the North Korean economy than they've ever been before. Um, And so that could be a real concern for uh, for Kim Jong-un. I think the second reason is that 2017 was the year in which North Korea tested more nuclear weapons and ballistic missiles uh, than ever before in North Korean history. And by the end of the year, they had proven to the world that they have both a potentially actually hydrogen (laughs) nuclear weapon um, and also an intercontinental ballistic missile that could reach most of the United States. And so Kim Jong-un, what he said in his uh, speech at the beginning of this year, 2018, in uh, signaling his interest in diplomacy, he said that he believes that he has now completed his nuclear program, and he feels like he's ready to come to the table with potentially some leverage. Um, and the final reason, I think, is that you have in South Korea a president who just took office last year who is different than his predecessor. He comes from a school of thought in South Korea that wants to engage with the North, that believes that that is the best way to reduce tensions. Um, and there, is, frankly, is a gap between the way that President Moon of South Korea sees North Korea and where President Trump is on North Korea. And I think Kim Jong-un would want to take advantage of that and try to divide uh, South Korea from the United States. So we're going to get these two players together, apparently, next month in Singapore, unless something drastically changes, and that's always a possibility. What are the likely outcomes of a meeting? What what could What's the best we could hope for? What's the worst we could fear of? Yeah, well, the, uh, the gap between the best and the worst that we can hope for, I think, is uh, quite large. <laughs> um, the uh, pitfalls here are uh, um, potentially endless. I mean, look, I think that the best-case scenario here is that This is the starting gun, if you will, this summit for a genuine 
diplomatic process uh, that reduces tensions and uh, addresses some of the key threats from North Korea. Um, the best case, I think, being that they are able to agree on sort of a framework of goals um, uh, for the negotiation uh, and then really uh, get those detailed negotiations uh, going. Um, uh, I think that's the best case scenario, uh, and I would be very pleased if that is the outcome. Uh, I think the worst case scenario is that President Trump sees this the way, frankly, his national security advisor, John Bolton, has repeatedly talked about it, which is as a one shot uh, at denuclearization. He comes to the table, ask Kim Jong-un to give up his nuclear weapons and his intercontinental ballistic missiles. And if he says no, then you walk away. Uh, and potentially return to where we were just a few months ago, which is, you know, talk of fire and fury and the potential for military uh, action, um, and sort of we fall off the cliff on the other side of that summit. So the the pitfalls are, are pretty great here. Hmm. So when we watch this thing going on, the, the actual negotiations, what should we be looking for that's going to tell us which way maybe that we're heading on this on this whole thing? Right. So I think there are obviously a lot of things to watch here. Um, first, we're going to see, uh, like we did with the summit between Kim Jong-un and President Moon of South Korea just a few weeks ago, uh, we're going to see a lot of pomp and circumstance uh, here, most likely. Um, Kim Jong-un wants this summit for propaganda purposes at home. This is a meeting with a U.S. president has been a request of North Korean leaders going back to uh, Kim Jong-un's grandfather. Um, and so this is, if it happens, a big potential propaganda coup for Kim Jong-un. Um, and he'll show him as a, you know, a, a leader on the world stage, if you will. Um, and so I think that President Trump, likewise, he likes you know, the idea of doing things that none of his predecessors have ever done before, right? This is the first time that a U.S. president will ever meet with a North Korean leader. And so I think that, again, he, both sides have an interest here in showing sort of the historic nature of this summit. And so I think watching very closely for how they choreograph this is going to be uh, important. Um, but then, of course, most importantly, is going to be the substance. Um, they'll come out with a statement, most likely, uh, jointly negotiated, and the language will be very, very carefully uh, crafted. What are the specific commitments that North Korea makes when it comes to giving up its nuclear weapons and its missile program? Uh, the language around what denuclearization means uh, is uh, not agreed to. Both sides have different interpretations of this. And so the language there about what North Korea is actually willing to give up will be very, very important. Uh, at the same time, what is the United States saying that it is willing to give to the North Koreans in return for uh, concessions by the North Koreans. This is something that we don't talk about a whole lot here, um, but North Korea is not going to give up uh, anything uh, for nothing from the United States. So I think watching very closely to see what the United States says, uh, it is potentially willing um, to give up. Um, and then I think we're going to have to watch a number of other things, including what the response is from United States allies like Japan. South Korea, uh, from other countries like China. Um, and uh, a lot of that will tell us sort of whether or not this negotiation has legs to really make progress going forward. Now, those allies, Japan, China, South Korea, uh, what what are they looking for? Because they're obviously, they've got to be part of anything that happens here because the sanctions have been so important in bringing uh, North Korea. I believe those have been important, bring North Korea here to the table. What are they going to be looking for, and what are they probably going to be willing to accept? Right. So, uh, again, that's a big question. I think that each of them have very different interests at play here. I think that South Korea um, obviously has an interest right now in seeing this diplomacy be successful and move forward. That's clearly where President Moon of South Korea wants to be. He has already obviously met with Kim Jong-un. Out of that meeting, they agreed to a number of different things, including a second summit where President Moon will go to Pyongyang at some point this fall. Um, and so he really wants to push forward, and he really is trying to make sure that this summit meeting with President Trump is uh, as successful as possible. Um, so that's what the South Koreans are going to want. The Japanese, I think, are very, very uh, worried about this. I think they find themselves, after working closely with the Trump administration last year to apply more pressure to North Korea, have found themselves a little bit out in the cold 
effect here. I'm surprised by Trump's uh, uh, whiplash turn towards diplomacy. Uh, Prime Minister Abe of Japan uh, got on a plane pretty quickly after that announcement and got himself down to Mar-a-Lago to talk to President Trump um, about uh, North Korea. Um, Japan has uh, additional interests as well. The issue of Japanese citizens who have been abducted by North Korea um, uh, years ago is still a highly politically sensitive issue in Japan, and they're going to want to make sure that that issue is addressed. So they're going to be watching very closely um, with, the, with some of those concerns in mind. And, and then I think with China, you know, I think China is trying to get itself back into this game um, here. You know, uh, since the announcement of this summit meeting between Kim and uh, Trump, Kim Jong Un has now met with Xi Jinping twice. Uh, in China, which are the first time that he's met with Xi Jinping um, uh, since they've both been in power. And so I think, again, China is going to want to make sure that its interests are being represented uh, here, um, which includes, frankly, keeping a strong hold or relationship with uh, uh, North Korea. Now, as we mentioned off the top here, North Korea is, quote, rethinking. It's uh, uh, maybe having this meeting with Trump and uh, Kim Jong-un. How should the U.S. respond to this? What should the U.S. do to get by this, or should the U.S. ignore that? I mean, if you were giving advice at this point, what would you be whispering in the president's ear? I would say that this is, again, just part of the negotiating process with uh, North Korea. I think that all along um, we need to be having very realistic uh, and manageable expectations about what this diplomatic process in North Korea can produce. Uh, you know, I am a strong advocate and have been for a long time of diplomacy with North Korea because I don't believe that you're going to solve any of these problems without diplomacy. Uh, that said, I am very realistic about what can be achieved, especially in a quick time frame with North Korea. And I think that, again, over the last few weeks and couple of months, we've seen very inflated expectations, in part voted on by President Trump's rhetoric uh, about the potentially historic nature uh, of this summit. And I think that, frankly, right now, one of the best things that can happen is actually bringing down to earth some of those expectations of what's going to come uh, of this summit. And so I would advise the president and the administration to keep pushing forward, make sure that they're actually putting in place real plans for uh, the summit and that they're hard at work actually negotiating behind the scenes with the North Koreans for uh, the real uh, substantive issues here and and try not to let any of the, the public bluster get in the way. We've been speaking with Michael Fuchs, who is a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress. You can find more what he writes over there at AmericanProgress.org. Hey, Michael, thank you so much for your time today. Oh, my pleasure. Coming up here next on the Mike McEntee Show, bringing back a protest movement 50 years later. We're going to talk about the Poor People's Campaign and what it's doing in Minnesota. You're listening to Mike McEntee Show here on AM 950. Hi, it's Tom Hartman. You know, Continental Diamond is special for a lot of reasons. The owners are Jimmy and Helene Pessis, a husband and wife team who had a dream to open their own store more than 30 years ago. They built a business that is the gold standard. The readers of Minnesota Bride Magazine have named Continental Diamond the best jeweler for the last seven years. Why? Amazing, friendly, no-pressure customer service, a selection of fine diamonds and designed jewelry unlike anywhere else, and the fresh-baked chocolate chip cookies are pretty great, too. Continental Diamond in St. Louis Park and at ContinentalDiamond.com. What kind of a jackass would let an animal pick their insurance? Did you really think a lizard could save you money on car insurance? Would you let a duck pick your health policy? Insurance can be a zoo, but this is ridiculous. What you really need is an insurance agent that isn't looking out for the insurance companies. You need Cheryl at Array, an independent agent with 30 years experience looking for the best rate possible. Quit monkeying around and call 763-504-3067. That's 763-504-3067 for Cheryl at Array, representing you, not the insurance company. Companies. Turn to Auto Technical with your vehicle donation. We have families waiting for a car. You know, over 85% of unemployed are successful in finding and keeping a job if they have dependable transportation. A car plus a job equals a life changed. 612-919-5526. We have families waiting for a car. 919-5526. Or Auto Tech. Dot org.
Woodland Stoves and Fireplaces is having their annual service special. Every stove, insert, and fireplace needs maintenance. Get it done now and save $40. You'll be ready to fire up before the cold weather hits again. From 94, take the Riverside Avenue exit and go east to 2901 Franklin Avenue. See the Twin Cities' most diverse selection of clean-burning, reliable, and environmentally smart stoves and fireplaces. Hi, I'm Peter Solak, owner of Woodland Stoves and Fireplaces. Have you ever watched your dog or cat curl up in front of a fire like a Norman Rockwell painting brought to life. It's primordial the way fire touches both the animal and the human. We have the equipment and the know-how to supply, install, and maintain stoves and fireplaces. Call us at 612-338-6606 and take advantage of our spring cleaning and maintenance special. We are online at woodlandstoves.com. The mission and the passion of Woodland Stoves and Fireplaces is to make the fire work for you. Woodland Stoves and Fireplaces, out of the ordinary products and services since 1977. It's the Mike McIntyre Show here on AM 950. Earlier this week, supporters of the Poor People's Campaign descended upon Representative Pat Garofalo's office at the Minnesota Capitol. Now, he's the author of the preemption bill that, among other things, forbids cities from raising their minimum wage. The occupation sounded like this. More than uh, 200 people participated. 13 people, though, were arrested. It was part of 30 actions across the nation to call attention to systemic poverty and racism. Expect expect more actions like this for a biblical 40 days and 40 nights, we're told. Joining us to discuss it is Dwayne Davis, who is on the steering committee for the Minnesota Poor People's Campaign. Dwayne, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm so glad to be able to talk to you. Glad to have you on here. Now, uh, for people who don't remember what the Poor People's Campaign is, uh, we should let's talk about that first, because this is nothing new. This is something rather old. This started with uh, uh, Martin Luther King way back. Uh, actually, he, he put this together just before he was assassinated. That's right. It, it uh, actually goes back to 1967. In 1967, it, two things became very clear to Dr. King. One was that the Vietnam War was not going to end anytime soon, and that the uh, the Johnson administration was indicating that by uh, diverting money from the war and poverty to uh, to beef up uh, support for the the, the war. And the second thing that happened, there were uprisings in urban areas all across the United States, with the the, the biggest ones being in Detroit and Newark. And uh, that began to, to let Martin Luther King understand something, that even after the passage of the Voting Rights Act of 1965 and the Civil Rights Act of 1964, it was clear that, uh, that there had been too little attention given to economic justice and the war economy. And so... He came up with this idea that we really needed to focus on uh, a revolution of values. What What is life like for the most vulnerable people in the United States? And so he talked about the three evils, uh, racism, systemic poverty, and the war economy, and that we needed to get the government's attention to draw it to, uh, on those issues uh, so that it, because it directly pe- directly impacted people's lives. And so uh, he started this campaign with the idea being that those people who were impacted by those issues, those evils, would show up at the Capitol in Washington, D.C., and bear witness to what was going on in their lives. And that's what the Poor People's Campaign was all about. It was organizing across race. Uh, black, white, Native American, Latino, all of them coming in to say uh, that the government needed to, to, to start changing course and talking about the things that matter, especially when it came to economic justice. Well, it's been 50 years. Uh, why bring this net back now? Haven't things changed since 50 years ago? Oh, oh! I tell you, Mike, that that is that is the the real issue, and and that things have not changed as much as we would hope they would be is the mm-hmm. very reason why I think the people in power 
have been refusing to talk about these issues. Uh, we have not had any sustained focus, attention, and discussion about poverty, about racism, about war economy, which now has bled into our daily lives with the militarized police forces in our cities and, and local governments. And I'll add a, we'll add another one, environmental degradation. We, we've got lawmakers and people in power who simply appear to not want to have real conversations about these issues and how they impact people's lives on the ground. And so we, are, we definitely need uh, a poor people's campaign in our own time, in our own context. We need to get the people in power to have a conversation that they appear to be running away from. And certainly that's not reflected in the policies that they're passing. Let's talk about militarized police just for a moment, because I think people, at least on this program, we talk about racism a lot, but mm-hmm. we also we, we talk about the police, but the militarization of the police is something maybe we don't talk about as much. Today, Donald Trump, I was just listening to, uh, uh, I think, no, it's actually a speech yesterday. He was bragging about how, to uh, the police that they now have access to military surplus, millions and millions of dollars that uh, they didn't have before, and they're very, very grateful for this. Uh, this these these are things that I mean we witnessed here in the during the Republican National Convention in 2008. We saw how well equipped the police could be. They looked like stormtroopers out of Star Wars, and that was just to you know quote keep the peace on the streets when there wasn't anything going on. That's not happen. We don't have a Republican National Convention in town every day, but. What are you seeing that when we talk about the militarization of the police, what do you see and how does that manifest itself? Well, you know, I was, I, uh, the, the, when, when, uh, Black Lives Matter occupied the fourth precinct in North Minneapolis, uh, Jamar Clark was killed about four blocks from where I live. And so I was Mm -hmm. there, uh, uh, every day. Uh, 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 I am a pastor here, and so I wanted to be a, a faith president. So I would go out there to be just a support and to pray and to sing and to be a part of what's going on. And what really, what what I witnessed was the exercises, these military exercises that our police were engaging in. They were sort of uh, doing exercises to prepare for when they were going to storm uh, the, the streets and, and, and push us back. And if you had seen it, it was, it was something like out of a movie. You know, I, 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 I don't witness up close what our military does. I, I only see some of these things on television and, uh, and in movies and that kind of thing. But you, if you had, would have seen how, uh, how armed they were and, and the, 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 the vehicles they were using and the formation they were using when they were jumping out of the, uh, the vehicles, it was very clear that not only were they equipped with very high-powered military weaponry, but that they were even uh, organizing themselves in a, in a, com- in a way of combat. Uh, so I saw firsthand what the militarization of the police looked like. And its relevance to what we're talking about here is uh, that uh, we, we are making investments in places that actually, uh, that almost seems to, 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 to promote a kind of, of uh, 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 organizing our police in a way in opposition to its citizens, not working with their citizens, not uh, responding to the needs of their citizens, but equipping them in such a way that they feel themselves that they're at, they're at odds with the people that they've been hired to protect. That's what I mean by a militarization. That's what our military is designed for, to go into hostile territory and, and be in combat. Uh, I'm not sure that's exactly what we want our law enforcement, local law enforcement to be or to see themselves as, as people in combat with the people they've been hired to protect. Now, when we talk about the militarization of the police and just what you were talking about, the, the conflict we had that led to the, you know, led to the unfortunate deaths on the, in Minneapolis, that's something that I think would concern everybody, not just poor people. But, I mean, it seems to be that it affects poor people more than the rest of the population. It, it, and, and that's one of the things that we want to have a conversation about. And I, I, I sometimes I say, and I know it can be kind of provocative, but it, what it looks like to me is that we have moved away from addressing poverty, and we 
uh, we've gone to a place of where we're targeting the poor. And that those are two very different things, and the implications of which side you land on means very different things. So if you're addressing poverty, that means that you are looking at the lived experience of people who are in poverty, people who are trying to make a living. But if you are trying to organize our communities and our society in a way such that you are tr- the, 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 po- the poor are a nuisance, or uh, what happens to the poor is their own fault, or they are, they, this is interfering with the stuff that government really is supposed to do, then it looks like you're targeting the poor. So when you ask that question... That's exactly the, the, the stance it looks like we, we have taken, that we are not interested in understanding the plight of the poor and addressing the issues that they have to confront. It seems like we're targeting them for outsized attention in a negative way. Uh, uh, they're a problem. They're, they're, there's something wrong with them. And therefore, our response should be uh, to do something about them. I, I think once you go down that road, you get to where we are, where we can't have a good conversation about what are the needs. That's why we were opposing that preemption bill. Uh, you know, local governments are trying to respond to their citizens, the things that their citizens are talking about, uh, the, the, I, to make a living, to, to have affordable housing. And if we have uh, state governments or even federal governments interfering with that uh, that that attention to the lived experience of the people in your own locality, uh, that sounds like you are you are you are, you, are, you have no interest in addressing poverty, uh, and so that's what I, I want us to get away. And I want us to have a conversation about what the campaign is about. Stop targeting the poor and start addressing poverty with real solutions, with real policies that address what's going on. Now, we've talked often on this program about the economics of the minimum wage is that it really does help the entire economy. It's it's something that makes economic sense. But you're approaching it not just from that standpoint, but also from a, a, morale, a morality standpoint. You have religious groups involved in here, and you're talking about the morality of things like the minimum wage. Speak to me about that. Yes, and I don't think it was. It, I don't think it was a mistake, and 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 I can't. I, I've been looking at some of this and reading how we've done this, but I don't think it was by chance that at some point in the history of of talking in terms of morality, it shifted to talk about things like uh, things around sexuality, things uh, around uh, uh, LGBTQ people, because if that's what your focus is on. Uh, if your focus is on abortion or, 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 or and, and, and that's the definition of moral, then you, you tend not to talk about the, the issues that should be in, in our sort of moral reasoning, issues about what does, it, what does it look like to take care of the most vulnerable in our midst? Uh, what does it look like to make sure that people have clean water and clean air? What kind of society are we going to be if if a person doesn't have access to affordable health care or they, they don't live in it. Those are real moral questions. And I think there, it, there is, it is in the interest of certain segments of our culture to not look at those things in terms of morality. But we're here to say that we, we, we cannot be uh, a just and democratic society if our moral agenda is only relegated to the things of what happens below the belt. Uh, uh, if we're not talking about things like greed and and poverty, if we're not talking about what our responsibilities and obligations are to the poor as well as to corporations, if we're not if we're not sort of keeping that balance about what the common good looks like and the general welfare looks like, then we have we have distorted what a moral agenda or morality is, and that's what we're trying to insert back into the conversation. That it is a moral agenda. It is a moral topic uh, uh, when we are talking about how the most vulnerable among us in our in our country, how we treat them, how they live, what happens to them, the quality of their life. And here's the big point. Are we doing justice when it comes to them? We're speaking with Dwayne Davis, who's with the Minnesota Poor People's Campaign. Dwayne, we only have about a minute left, but you said this is going to be going on for quite some time this year. Uh, How can people get involved if they want to get involved in the actions that are going to be happening and find out more information? 
you can go, you certainly right away you can go to Facebook and look up the Minnesota Poor People's Campaign, and when you do that, you'll see uh, not only the actions that we're doing, the rallies that we're doing every week. Uh, and some of the action that we're doing, but you also could get involved. You can, you can participate in teach-ins. We're teaching and we're doing political education. We're teaching people how to uh, do civil disobedience and direct action. We we're talking about the 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 theory and history of direct action and civil disobedience. So one of the things that we're trying to do is not only get in pe- people involved in the actions and the rallies, but we also want to train people, equip them with the skills to be the kind of people who will go to their government and, and ask for their government to, for, for, to respond to their needs. So go to Facebook and look for Minnesota Poor People's Campaign. You can also go to our website, which is minnesotapoorpeoplescampaign.org. Uh, and that's one word, mnpoorpeoplescampaign.org. Uh, and you'll find out uh, how to donate, how to uh, volunteer. You'll find out what actions are coming up. You'll find out what trainings and political educational opportunities are available. Because we're not just, after the 40 days, we want people who get involved to be equipped with the skills, to be organized, so that as we go forward, we can continue to bring that moral agenda to uh, our lawmakers. All right. Dwayne Davis, it's mnpoorpeoplescampaign.org. Dwayne, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Thank you for listening, and thank you all for uh, giving attention to this issue. There's plenty of things to do and more time to get involved, so please come and join us. All right. Folks, you're listening to The Mike McEntee Show here on AM 950. We're going to take a break, and we'll be back in just a couple minutes. Hi, Gregory Rich, owner of Habitation Furnishing and Design and host of Drink in the Style right here on AM 950. Hey, I've only got a few seconds, so here's the deal. Habitation is the coolest furniture store in town. Not only have we got some of the most exceptional furniture in the cities, but in many cases, Habitation can offer you store credit on your existing furniture. Stop in, talk to one of our designers, and let us help you make your home exceptional. Habitation Furnishing and Design, 4317 Excelsior Boulevard in St. Louis Park. Tom Hartman here letting you know how you can save money with All Energy Solar. One of the myths about solar is that it's too expensive and you need lots of money down. The truth? Solar is available for little or no money down. And if you have a great site for solar, you might even save money right away on a monthly basis. So don't wait to switch. You'll see your investment pay off the sooner you switch to All Energy Solar. So start saving today and visit allenergysolar.com. Tap, taste, and treasure at Vinaigrette, where we have some warm seasonal recipes all ready to create dynamite meals. Our fig balsamic vinegar pairs perfectly with roasted Brussels sprouts or baked brie. And sweet potatoes are always a winner, but never more than when they're roasted with a drizzle of vinaigrette cinnamon or orange-fused extra virgin olive oil on top. Come in today for more custom-crafted food and cocktail recipes at Vinaigrette, 50th and Xerxes in Minneapolis, and 287 Water Street in downtown Excelsior. Online at vinaigrettemn.com. The number one source of the Twin Cities Gay Scene is all digital. Follow Twin Cities Gay Scene on Facebook and Twitter. Sign up for the Scene Shot email blast for weekly updates and chances to win great prizes. No app is needed to view the bi-weekly web editions of Scene. It's GLBTQ Media for the mobile generation. Find it all at TwinCitiesGayScene.com. That's TwinCitiesGayScene.com. Hey, it's Mike McEntee back here on AM 950. Uh, I talk about the uptake here. I've mentioned the classes that we're holding. You can find them, by the way, over at theuptake.org slash classes. But one of our longtime board members at the uptake has died. You may know him as a newspaper columnist at the Pioneer Press or at the Star Tribune or even as a former host of programs here on AM 950. But I knew Nick Coleman as a fellow fighter for social justice. He often said his job as a journalist was to afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. He was on our board for many years, and he was executive editor for a time. Nick loved to tweak the powerful. He hated Tim Pawlenty. He thought he was a horrible governor, and he ridiculed his run for president. So when I asked him to make a video in 2011 welcoming Netroots Nation to coming to town, he jumped at it. He and Chuck Olson did this video. The idea was to take the famous Fast Paul ad that got Paul Wellstone elected senator. It's radio, so you'll have to just imagine the visuals of Nick zipping from location to location in the Twin Cities. 
We're already moving here. We don't have much time because you never know. The authorities may show up and kick us out of here. Nick Coleman, Chuck Olson, the uptake. We want to welcome everybody from Netroots Nation to the beautiful twin cities of St. Paul, Minneapolis, starting with the state capitol. This beautiful 1905 structure has practically collapsed on us after eight years of Tim Plenty. You know, the guy who's going to save the country from Obama. He didn't believe in new taxes. He didn't believe in new roofs either. We are number one in turkey production, and that doesn't even count the legislature. Hey everybody, it's literary legend of Scott Fitzgerald. Hey man, where's that 20 bucks you owe me? Hey, you know, people often ask me, what's the difference between St. Paul and Minneapolis? Well, Minneapolis is gay friendly, bike friendly, everybody says so. St. Paul's just friendly friendly. We're so friendly that in 2008, they brought a whole convention of wealthy conservatives to Minnesota. Yeah, they had the 2008 convention for the Republicans right here at the XL Energy Center. This is where Sarah Palin asked that immortal question, what's the difference between a hockey mom and Tim Pawlenty and you know it was lipstick. So you just have to be careful because there were 800 people arrested, dozens of journalists, a lot of things went down here. But if you come to St. Paul, as a St. Paul guy, I hope you do just be careful and use protection. Oh. We thought we should show you Minnesota Public Radio. Pub public Radio, Minnesota Public Radio. We had some kind of an entertaining show, I don't know, fiddles, chickens, whatever, and is the Prairie guy Home Companion. Prairie Home Companion. Garrison Keeler, Public Radio, Minnesota. You can put the pieces together on your own. We are outside the mall of America. I am not kidding, it's the mall of America. The star, that star never sets on the Mall of America. And we know our malls. We invented malls. Minnesota was the first home of an enclosed shopping center. I'm not kidding ya. Everybody comes eventually to the Mall of America. And shopping by gum is what we do in this country. Oh my gosh, look at this. It's Mayor R.T. Ryback of Minneapolis with Hubert Humphrey behind him. What are you going to be doing during the Netroots Convention, Mayor? I think I'm going to blog a lot, I'm going to Facebook blog, a lot, I'm going to tweet Facebook, a lot, and I'm media. not going to sleep a lot. Oh, well, thanks very much. we got to go. Right. And here's the Metrodome. A lot of things fell down here. The roof on this baby went down last December. It's still down, still flatter than a Tim Pawlenty joke about his smoking hot wife. More deflated than a mm, Brett Favre sexting from the locker room. First Avenue, Prince, he lived here, right there. My homie Harvey Killebrew passed away just last month. Icon of my youth, we built a $400 million public finance stadium for the Twins. Outdoor baseball has returned, and they already have the second worst record in baseball. Yeah, that was Nick Coleman. You can see the whole video, by the way, over at theuptake.org and on the Uptake's Facebook page. Uh, Coleman died Wednesday, yesterday, at Regents Hospital in St. Paul, three days after suffering a massive stroke at his home. He was 67. Governor Mark Dayton today paid homage to Nick Coleman. He said, I remember uh, happily in my years playing adult ice hockey with Nick. I always enjoyed his columns, except occasionally when they were about me. He was a terrific public citizen, and I offer my deepest consolences to his family upon his passing, as do we. That's it for today's show. I'm Mike McEntee. Thanks for listening. And as always, Mom, thank you for listening. We'll be back tomorrow.